Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. This episode contains discussions of family and domestic violence. If this is triggering for you, give this one a miss. And if you need help, please call 1-800-RESPECT. It was a summer morning in Camp Hill, an eastern suburb of Brisbane, when 31-year-old Hannah Clark helped her three children, six-year-old Aliyah, four-year-old Layana and three-year-old Trey, get ready for the day ahead. It was Wednesday, February 19, 2020, and the morning was characteristically chaotic. Hannah was staying with her parents following the breakdown of her relationship with Rowan Baxter, a man who had become increasingly abusive. As Hannah buckled her three small children into the car, Baxter emerged, having been watching her nearby. He forced her into the driver's seat and slipped himself into the passenger seat, holding a knife to her throat and telling her to drive. Within minutes, their three children would be dead. Hannah would sustain injuries so horrific she would later die in hospital. The story of Hannah Clark and her three children sent shockwaves across the country as we learned that this was a woman who had a domestic violence order out against her former partner. What's his name? Rowan Baxter. What's I his... don't object to him actually seeing the kids because he does this and he's fine for one minute and then the next minute. <laughs> the murder of three people was an endpoint in a reign of terror Baxter had subjected his family to for years. And an inquest, which finished only last week, shined a spotlight on the events leading up to that day in February 2020. I'm Jessie Stevens, and this is True Crime Conversations, a Mamma Mia podcast exploring the world's most notorious crimes by speaking to the people who know the most about them. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Kate Kiriakou, the Chief Crime Reporter for Courier Mail Brisbane, about the nine-day inquest into the death of Hannah Clark and her three children. Kate, for anyone who perhaps missed this news story, and I am sure that is not many people in Australia, what actually happened to Hannah Clark and her three children in February 2020? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we should start by saying this is probably one of the most horrible criminal acts. You know, I've been a journalist for 20 years. It's probably one of the most horrible things I've heard of. So basically Hannah Clark was a mother of three who had left an abusive relationship after many years and she'd moved in with her parents 
And basically she was very frightened that her estranged husband would come and do something awful to her. I'm not sure that she ever believed he would hurt the children, but she certainly thought he was going to kill her. And there was a real inevitability about it to her, I think is fair to say. So she got in the car one morning to drive the children to school. The children were aged six, four and three. So Alia, Liana and Trey, they were in the back seat in their car seats. And her ex, Rowan Baxter, ambushed her as she was driving out of the driveway. So he's jumped into the passenger seat with a can of fuel and a knife and he told her to just drive. And she did. And a couple of blocks away she spotted a man washing his car. And so she sort of screamed to a stop and yelled out for him to help her and to call the police. And he walked up to the car and said, you know, hey, what's going on here? Just tried to calm things down. And as he was standing by the car, it went up in flames, so much so that it burnt his face. And Hannah was able to get out, Baxter got out, and neighbours ran with fire extinguishers and hoses. Hannah had really horrific burns. And they tried to put the fire out, and Baxter basically you know, I guess the right word is sort of menaced them to stop them from putting the fire out. And by the time the firefighters arrived and police arrived and all that, the children were dead. And Hannah was still conscious and was able to tell police what had happened. And she was taken to hospital and died a few hours later. The reason we wanted to look at this case today is because an inquest has just finished and we wanted to look at, you know, what came out during that inquest. Can you outline for us what the purpose of this inquest was? Yeah, so not everyone would really understand how an inquest works, but I guess you could call it like a a trial when there's nobody on trial. So they have witnesses and witnesses are cross-examined by someone called a counsel assisting the coroner who's, you know, a very experienced lawyer and is presided over by a coroner who's effectively like a judge and it basically looks at how and why someone or multiple people have died and whether or not there needs to be any changes in the system or to processes that would stop it from happening again. So that's exactly what occurred here. I don't think there was really much mystery behind how Hannah and the children died and Baxter obviously died from self-inflicted wounds at the scene. He was also burnt quite significantly as well. But this looked at processes around domestic violence and how police responded to it, but also how other agencies responded to it when Hannah had approached them for help in the lead up to the murders. So that was all examined quite a lot. But also what was examined was the process of her leaving this abusive relationship and how Baxter responded after that. Before we go into those, you know, weeks and months before Hannah Clark's death, I wanted to ask what you learned about who Hannah Clark was, what kind of mother she was, what kind of woman she was. What did you learn? Yeah, actually, I was talking about this with some colleagues in the office this morning because we've written a lot about Hannah in the two years since she was killed. And it was really interesting to find that all of these independent witnesses and all the people who'd met and had anything to do with Hannah portrayed her in exactly the same way she's been portrayed the last two years by people who loved her. So not that I really expected anything different, but she really was a beautiful mum. She was 
bubbly and energetic and generous and empathetic. She had so much empathy that even the night before she was murdered, Baxter had called her and well, called the children to speak to the children on FaceTime. And he'd just been so awful to her, stalking her. He was frightening her. And he'd called the night before the murders, just basically blubbering onto the phone. He called to speak to the children on FaceTime and he just sobbed the whole time and wasn't even getting words out, which really just confused the children. And she got off the phone and had said to a friend, I just felt really awful for him, you know, no one should suffer that much. So that really sort of paints a picture of what Hannah was like despite what he was putting her through at that time and what he'd put her through in those, you know, months leading up to her death. She felt bad for him suffering. And that was Hannah, but she was also very accomplished. She was a really accomplished athlete. She was competing in like CrossFit Games competitions. She she was, every time you see a photo of her, you can see she was an athlete. You know, I've met Sue many times, Hannah's mother, and Sue's just one of those women where she's kind of like everyone's mum. She's so lovely and generous. You just get that really warmth from meeting her. She's like, she's everyone's mum. And I really always get the impression that Hannah was exactly the same as Sue. And if she was, you know, I imagine she was, but what a loss. I mean, regardless, it is anyway. But yeah, Sue's so beautiful. So you really do get the impression that Hannah was like her. Did you get a sense during the inquest of what the marriage between Rowan and Hannah was like for the most part? What was it like sort of when they met and when they began having their children? Was it always abusive or did it develop? I think it was one of those classic coercive control relationships. So Hannah was very young. She was 19. He was much older. I think he was about 30. And he was very charming initially and sort of one Sue and Lloyd over Hannah's parents over to some extent but then very quickly after they had their first child he became really possessive and controlling I imagine he was always like that but he initially was able to mask it so as you know they had the other two children as well his behavior became more and more acute you know he told her what to wear who she could speak to where she could go he was horrible to her, you know, called her fat after she had the children, can't wear pink, only little girls wear pink, you know, just was really got to the point where Hannah was always walking on eggshells. He, you know, managed to drive a wedge between her and her friends and family, you know, just the classic isolation. He isolated her from other people. And she really lost that real bubbly side to her personality because she was always worried about how he would respond to things and you know if she was closing up the gym and he expected her to be home at a certain time she'd be really frantic about what time to get home in case he questioned her about where she'd been she would find herself sort of lying to him if she was closing up the gym and and there was a male worker there she felt like she couldn't even tell him that because he would draw the wrong conclusions and you know, just that sort of awful stuff where she really was living really fearful of him, I guess, turning on an ice edge at any moment over any stupid little thing. And you really saw that in the footage that was released at the inquest of Baxter getting pulled over just by traffic police who were checking the car's registration and they discovered that the car was unregistered. And he immediately said, you could see it on the body-worn camera, oh, it's her fault, she hasn't paid the bill, it's her fault. And you can hear Hannah's voice was, 
you know, just that slight high pitch, just a little bit of panic to it, just trying to diffuse the situation. She got out of the car and said, oh, this is a misunderstanding, you know. I thought it wasn't due till October. Please, we had no idea. And, and he was going, don't try and explain yourself, you know, just a really kind of condescending you could just tell a lot from the voices of both of them mm. in the car. There was just red flags there. And I'm sure a lot of women in that sort of relationship would have watched that footage and it would have resonated with them. Why did Hannah Clark decide to leave ultimately? What made her leave her husband? So I know she planned it for a little while and she talked about it for a long time with people, but when a friend asked her why she'd finally left, uh, one of the school mums, she said Alia couldn't handle it anymore. So that was probably one of the most sad parts of the inquest was her six-year-old daughter, Alia, the oldest, was a real feisty, sort of wise little six-year-old. And as sad as it is, I think all the reporters in that court case you know you take a slight amount of comfort from learning about the little personalities of the kids and the things that they like to do and I guess just kind of give them back their little personalities which sometimes get lost in the horror of this crime but Alia was a really smart six-year-old girl who understood a lot about her parents relationship and knew that Baxter was really cruel to her mother and would stand up to him and would say to him, why are you sulking? Mum said, sorry, just be nice to her. And because she did that, he was threatened by her because she would stand up to him. I don't know what kind of man is threatened by a six-year-old girl, but he was. And because of that, he was really mean to her. And Hannah knew it. And she told one of the school mums that she left because of Alia, because Alia just couldn't take it anymore. I think a lot of women, you know, will put up with a lot for themselves, but when it comes to protecting their children, they make a different decision. They don't want their children to have to go through that. There were a lot of people during the inquest who spoke to Baxter's character and what kind of man he was. You know, he had recorded Hannah without her permission and words like narcissist came up. How did he come across? What did people say about him throughout that inquest? Well, it was interesting because the people who gave evidence at the inquest, like Hannah's colleagues or people who knew them both really well, you know, on the one hand, they they had a friendship with Baxter for at least some period of time. And although they found him difficult to deal with, and they weren't perhaps at that point aware of what he was really like, they sort of persevered with him because I, I suppose they were, you know, generous people who tried to do the right thing. We know that there were other people in their lives that were talked about but didn't necessarily give evidence at the inquest who had completely sided with Baxter and had fallen for his, I guess, you know, tale of woe about how he's a victim here. And, you know, he falsely said that Hannah had left him for another man. It was just rubbish. She'd taken away the kids from him. You know, again, rubbish. Hannah wanted them to have a relationship with their dad even when perhaps it wasn't the best thing for the kids. But um. I guess the people who who gave evidence talked about him being, I guess, like that alpha character. He was always trying to be that alpha. He would go in and sort of say, you know, she was working at a shoe store and um, he would go in there and basically expect free shoes all the time and would come back and complain about how long they lasted or, 
you should have these other models or why have you displayed these here and we'd always just kind of try and tell them how to do their job and they kind of just put up with it. Yeah, maybe for Hannah's sake, you know, or maybe they saw parts of his personality that weren't all that bad all the time. Maybe he was capable of charming some people. But I guess, you know, people who went to the gym that he was running sort of found it a bit weird that he would be rude or dismissive to the people who went to the gym and they wondered why he would do that because it wasn't really keeping your clientele on board or coming back to the gym. So one of them described him as a reverse businessman who would not do anything to keep clients. So you kind of wonder at that. What sorts of things was he posting on social media? I think it was particularly Facebook. There were videos of him with the kids that people retrospectively found quite distressing. What were some of those videos? Yeah, so there was a couple of elements to things he was posting online and and part of that when he and Hannah were still together, he would post videos of him playing really rough with the kids and seemed to have no understanding that that would come across as really inappropriate or confronting to people. So he would take ice baths, you know, as many people who do a lot of training do to sort of, you know, aid in muscle recovery. And I think one of the kids wanted to have a try one day, but Trey, the three-year-old, he dunked tray in the ice bath you know up to his neck and he posted footage of that with Trey really struggling and being terrified at being held underwater in ice and he thought it was funny but people who watched it just found it really confronting there were other stories and and I don't know that these were posted but of him like rugby tackling Alia really hard like at full force just thinking it was fun and games so just bizarre I mean I mean I don't have anything good to say about the guy but I don't think he'd be far off the mark if you called him a narcissist without any ability to view himself and reflect on himself at all other than painting himself as a victim you know you're listening to true crime conversations with me Jesse Stevens I'm speaking with crime reporter Kate Kiriakou about the death of Hannah Alaya Layana and Trey Clark. On Boxing Day 2019, which is in the months leading up to the murder of Hannah and her three kids, he abducted their four-year-old. Baxter abducted their four-year-old. What repercussions did he face for that? Yeah, so that was Liana, who was his favourite, and she was described as I guess she's a little peacemaker, you know, she's adorable, sort of cuddly four-year-old and she was his favourite. So on Boxing Day, well, the day before he'd spent Christmas with Hannah and her family, Sue hadn't wanted that, but she was kind of outvoted by the family who were trying to do the right thing by Baxter. So he'd been to the house, he'd spent a bit of time with the kids and with the family and it had been completely fine. And the next day Hannah agreed to meet him in a park at Belimba and they could watch the kids skateboarding and that sort of thing. And he just kind of, you know, his personality sort of switched and he's grabbed Dahlia and taken her to his car, threw her in the passenger seat, hit her head on the doorframe on the way in. And, of course, she's four. She needs to be in a car seat. He didn't even put a seatbelt on her. And as Hannah and the other kids screamed for him to stop, he drove away. There was a lady riding her bike past who saw the whole thing and rode up and flagged down some police who were a bit further down the street and told them what she'd seen. And they went and found Hannah. And 
basically at the time they said to her, I don't know that there's much that we can do because he's her biological father. There's no parental agreement in place. There's actually no no legal grounds for us to go and get her back. And we see them in footage explaining that to her. And it's really distressing to watch because, of course, Hannah's terrified. And to her and to everyone, I'm sure, it's not right that she would have no way to get her daughter back. And so what's happened is Bax has taken her to stay with a friend in New South Wales. And Basically, the police were able to get Liana back by putting in place a temporary protection order, like a domestic violence order, and they went and served that on him. By that time, he'd come back to Brisbane, I think about two and a half days later, and they were able to have that as part of the terms of the protection order that you have to return Liana. And I think the reason for that was that they put a 100-metre exclusion zone on him approaching Hannah or the children. So that meant he had to give his daughter back to Hannah. But they couldn't charge him with abduction or anything like that because technically it wasn't. So that was one of the issues that was examined by the inquest. At this stage, by the end of 2019, is Hannah fearing for her own life? Is she really worried that there's going to be acts of violence perpetrated against her? Yes, she is. And she says it to her parents. She says, who's going to look after my children when he kills me? She tells her friends. She tells some work colleagues. She asks a work colleague how she goes about writing a will so she can make sure that the children are taken care of. The police made aware of her fears and that was one of the other issues that was put to the inquest you know should police pay more attention to the level of fear of the victim so Mm. there's a big difference between maybe someone making death threats you know which is a serious issue in itself but also that's completely different to the victim themselves saying I believe he's going to kill me so I mean people can say stupid things in the moment or whatever it doesn't mean you don't take those seriously too but there's something really really serious about someone saying this man's going to kill me and I feel like I'm just sitting here waiting for that to happen which is what the situation was with Hannah and it's not like police were ignoring that either they were working really hard to get the domestic violence order in place so that you know Bax would be told that he had to stay a certain distance from her and he had to stop harassing and stalking her and all that kind of thing but um that was part of what was sort of examined by the inquest could police have looked at doing more rather than just getting the DVO in place, could they have looked at him for stalking her with a criminal charge based around that? You know, various other things around allegations she'd made as well could have amounted to criminal charges but weren't necessarily investigated in that light because police were focusing on the DVO. Now, had they arrested Baxter for stalking, would he have done any jail time? Who knows? Would that have stopped him from killing her? Probably not. But Should it be something that's looked at? Absolutely. Had there been any physical violence at this stage? Because there was a story that came out of the inquest regarding explicit images, intimate images of Hannah that he had sprawled on his back seat and that situation escalated, didn't it? Yeah, so and there were a couple of other sort of acts of violence 
probably around that level as well. And it was interesting because Hannah still for a long time, even though, you know, Sue told stories about him banging the gate into her leg deliberately so hard it left a really big bruise and just things like that, you know, whereas Hannah for a long time didn't understand that to be domestic violence because he hadn't hit her, you know, even though maybe he was rough with her, maybe he deliberately tried to hurt her, but he hadn't hit her. So she obviously came to understand that differently, but for a long time she didn't understand that as domestic violence. But the incident with the car, this is after they split up, Baxter was returning three-year-old Trey who was in the back seat of the car. Hannah was at her parents' house. He pulled up out the front. Hannah went to get Trey out of the car and he has spread intimate photographs that he'd made her pose for, mind you, on the back seat of the car. And he basically told her he was going to use that to damage her character. <laughs> in court and Hannah became upset obviously because the photos were there in front of her little boy so she was grabbing them off the back seat and I guess just screwing them up and trying to get them out of plain view and he's grabbed her by the wrist and twisted her arm behind her back and sort of pushed her up against the car and I mean Hannah and her mother Sue who saw the whole thing believed he was trying to break her arm and the only reason he stopped is Sue had wanted to go out to the car with Hannah and Hannah had sort of said oh you know I've got this mum don't worry about it so Sue was watching to make sure you know nothing went wrong and then when she saw Baxter attack her daughter she ran out of the house screaming at him to let her go and she was calling the police so that's why he let her go and you know they got Trey out of the car and went into the house and the next day Hannah went to the doctor and had her arm looked at. It was revealed during the inquest that Hannah's case had what domestic violence experts call lethality indicators, which means that basically when they're present in a domestic violence relationship, they indicate an increased likelihood of murder. And I think she had 29 out of 39. What were some of those indicators? Yeah, so, I mean, I can't remember all 29 off the top of my head, but there were things that you would expect, you know, separation, Mm custody dispute all of those sorts of things but I think the reality was with Hannah is that there were way more than the average case so I can't remember what the average was but it was something like 12 or something like that she was right off the charts with lethality indicators I think one too was non-lethal strangulation that's always seen as a massive lethality indicator the chances of someone who has been subjected to non-lethal strangulation, then being murdered is something like, you know, you've got a much higher chance of being murdered effectively than if that hasn't happened to you. So a lot of things like that were really serious indicators that this man was very unstable and, you know, Hannah was at very serious risk. So how is it? Hannah Clark has reported, you know, a lot of these instances, she's reported the abduction, which wasn't technically an abduction at that point, but she has gone to police. She is at this point a victim who has done everything right. How is it that police didn't appear to be aware of just how serious this was? What went wrong? I think they were aware She was working with one particular police officer who was very concerned for her and would walk past her work, you know, all the time and make sure that she was okay because Baxter was walking past her work all the time. He was rocking up at the same coffee place that she went to. You know, he was basically stalking her. I just think that they, I mean, they even said it themselves, they were very focused on getting the DVO in place 
But you're right, you know, he's he's murdered her. The inquest was told that perhaps nothing would have stopped Baxter. You can't arrest someone for maybe murdering somebody. You just can't. And had Hannah fled into state, would he have tried to track them down? Yep, I think everyone believes he would have. But, you know, is that good enough? Of course not. I don't think we can accept that some men out there are going to murder their partners no matter what. We have to try and find a way to stop that from happening. So, I mean, that was part of what the inquest was for, right? So some police were doing everything they could by Hannah, but do they need to look at changing the processes to find a way to do different things and try different things? Obviously, I don't think anyone would disagree to some perpetrators a DVO is a piece of paper that means absolutely nothing to them. And that's certainly the case of Baxter. He couldn't care less that there was a DVO. It didn't mean anything to him. So was that the best course of action in his case? Doesn't seem like it. So what else could they do? I I don't know. Domestic violence is such a complex issue and that's why this inquest was lengthy and complex and heard from experts and heard from police and domestic violence workers. You know, what do we do about this? It can't be right that there are perpetrators out there who are just unstoppable and We have to accept that. I don't think anyone, the inquest wouldn't have accepted that. The council assisting or the coroner don't want to accept that. So what can we do? Coercive control legislation is one thing that, you know, he could have been charged 100 times over. But again, for a charge, you need a complainant. Would Hannah have put in a police complaint about him? Maybe not, because she might have thought it would escalate things. And that was, you know, the case when they were getting the domestic violence order put in place. Did she want Baxter charged with other offences? She believed that that would escalate his behaviour. So, again, it's such a complex situation. Do you think Hannah Clark or her parents or any friends ever thought that this man would harm the children? Well, one of her closest friends told police that she thought he would kill them all. But... As far as I'm aware, she's the only one who voiced that. Hannah and her parents thought that he would for sure harm Hannah. But in saying that, I think part of her did think he was capable of hurting the children because she, when he, she was giving him access to them, she was terrified all the time. He kept making threats and playing games with her about not bringing them back when they were visiting with him. So that's why she had to stop him from seeing them, particularly when he abducted one of them. And you can see the fear in her voice when he takes Leanna. That's not the fear of someone who thinks Baxter's just trying to defy her and have a visit with his daughter for a couple of days. That's the fear of a mother who doesn't know if her child's safe. So if that's the case, then there was at least part of her who thought he was definitely capable of hurting the children. She obviously just didn't want to believe that. Mm. I mean, that's a complicated answer as well, isn't it? There was one friend who did believe it. Hannah certainly didn't voice it that I'm aware of. We don't have the official findings yet of the inquest, but the big question is about what could have been done to prevent it. And one suggestion that's sort of come up is to do with training. A lot of these police officers were very junior. The amount of domestic violence, you know, situations they're going to are just enormous. I think there was some saying it's, you know, up to 50% of what they do. What stood out to you? Was there anything that you thought 
this could be done to prevent this in future or this perhaps needs to be looked at more closely? Yes, and I just want to start this by saying I've been reporting on crime for 20 years, but I just do not want to claim to be any sort of expert at all on police processes Mm. and, and things like that. That's not what I do. I'm not a police officer. But I suppose if there was one thing that stood out to me was exactly as you said, most of the police or a lot of the police responding to domestic violence incidents are relatively junior general duties police officers. And they're taught to do certain things. So if A happens, then we do B, you know, like if someone is threatened, then we put a police protection notice in place. We try and take out a temporary protection order. Their processes, and for a reason, are very black and white. Has this person broken the law? Yes. Well, then how do we respond to that? I think sometimes in these situations, domestic violence isn't black and white. And I don't know if there's some room for some more, I guess, critical thinking around a situation and again I'm not a police officer so I just don't want to tell them how to do their job I don't know but sometimes you just kind of need to think outside the box to form solutions when a situation is very very complicated I think the more training the better not a single police officer disagreed with that on the stand and particularly training around coercive control coercive control has been around for a very long time but as far as a a legal aspect. Is it illegal to coercively control your partner? That's legislation that will be introduced presumably in the next couple of years. So I think that means that anyone responding to DV is going to have to start thinking differently about what is a crime and what isn't. Some of the things that were raised were, as we mentioned before, do police need to take more seriously the level of the victim? Does this person think that they are going to die. Yes, well, how do you respond to that? That's something you should definitely take very, very seriously. And, you know, it's just like when a child's reported missing, a teenager's reported missing, mm-hmm. and the parents come in and say, this is not our kid, our child would never, ever do that. How seriously do you take that? You should take it extremely seriously. You know, if the parents are saying their child doesn't normally run away, doesn't take off, doesn't come home late, then you should definitely take that into consideration. It's the same with a domestic violence victim. Do they believe they're about to die? Well, maybe they are about to die. You know, they don't think that for no reason. Mm, It's a really good point. And I think what you say about the level of training that junior police officers said themselves, they want more training. They want more specialised training in this area and they want to know what to do they're there to help but it does sound like you know something that needs to be invested in a little more and hopefully the inquest finds some really helpful solutions to an issue that faces so many Australian women. Yeah and there is domestic violence training around coercive control rolling out in Queensland Police Service right now and they're working on more so it's not like that's not happening but yeah just I don't know the answer. It's a very complicated thing. They're doing more things. I think one of the recommendations from the coroner that was sort of outlined in the council assisting's closing sort of submissions was the trialling of a sort of, I guess, multidisciplinary police station where you can go and there's police there, but there's also counsellors there, there's social workers there, there's people who can get Mm. you into emergency housing, there's people from child safety. So it's like a one-stop shop. And it seemed like that was something the coroner might recommend, a trial of that. So I just think in this space, 
there's room to try all sorts of different things and to see what works because, as you said before, so much time of police is spent on domestic violence. And, of course, it's not just a police responsibility either. You've got to get it at the front end before it becomes a crime and that's something Sue and Lloyd Clark are heavily involved in, you know, going to schools, teaching school kids what a respectful relationship looks like. That's more important than anything. Every mm. single person should grow up knowing what it, and because obviously many people grow up in households where there's no healthy relationships. So how are those people supposed to know what a healthy relationship is? So that should be taught to everybody intervening when your friend's in a relationship that doesn't seem quite right. What do you do about it? How do you approach them? What do you do to support them? How do you speak out to people who are treating their partner not well? You know, do you say, mate, why would you speak to her like that? That's not normal. Why do you think that's acceptable? You know, people speaking out more and calling out bad behaviour, that's important as well. It's not just a, a police issue on the end when it becomes a crime. It's, you know, changing society and that's obviously a tall order too but it's more important than anything. Kate Kiriaku is the Brisbane Courier-Mail's chief crime reporter. She has won awards both at a state and national level for her work as a crime writer and has appeared on this podcast previously to discuss the investigation into Daniel Morecambe's killer. You can find that episode here in our True Crime Conversations feed. True Crime Conversations is a Mamma Mia podcast hosted by me, Jessie Stevens, and my executive producer is Gia Moylan. If you have a case you think we should cover next, get in touch with us. Send an email to truecrimeatmamamia.com.au or join our online community. Just search for True Crime Conversations on Facebook and make a request to join.